All right, here we are down in the beautiful Niagara region. Charlie Angus, Member of Parliament, Timmins James Bay, lead singer of the Grievous Angels, former bass player in L'Etranger. Bass players are the best players. <laughs> yeah, until my bass was stolen and my career sort of went off. It's been downhill ever since I ended up in politics. <laughs> well, I hope it goes no further than that. Yeah, I know, geez. But that Fender P bass, man. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve lake take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. So you're here in the dish with one spoon territory. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is that unbeknownst to anybody, there's nuclear waste that's flowing right through the heart of the dish with one spoon territory. There is waste that's flowing from Chalk River and they're bringing it a, across the border. And I don't I don't recall being asked. And I'm, I can almost definitely guarantee they didn't ask the Confederacy Chiefs Council or any of the local indigenous representatives. They didn't even bother to put it through the Friendship Center movement. Do you have any familiarity with, with what's happening with nuclear waste in the area? Well, I was really surprised to come down here and learn about these shipments because, and I'm going to look into it a lot more, but my initial understanding is it's liquid waste being shipped by truck and maybe weapons grade uh, being shipped to the United States. I have real serious concerns about that. Uh, I have serious concerns about how waste has been moved. That's my background has been involved in stopping toxic waste imports, stopping nuclear waste coming into the regions of the north. But when you have the kind of vehicle traffic in this region, that there there is a question of safety and why why are the public always kept in the dark why are the indigenous people kept in the dark so i'm going to certainly be looking into this because i think it raises a lot of big flags for me well and i have it on pretty good authority that you have a bit of a background dealing with issues along these lines where uh, what what can you give our listeners a little more context my political career really began um with fighting the Adams Mine garbage dump. I was I was a musician. Uh, I was touring with a band. Uh, I was also working, my wife and I started our own independent media in the North because we thought issues of the North were not being talked about. And there was a scheme to move millions and millions of tons of garbage to Northern Ontario and dump it in an abandoned iron ore pit. Now that might, you know, people might've thought, oh, it's a mine, but it's not a mine. When you break the, the ground and create these giant canyons, you break the water table and the water flows through these pits and they weren't even gonna put a liner in. And the threat to the groundwater of our region was enormous. And so I began to cover these meetings. I began to follow it. And what I began to understand is how the public process was set up to deny the voice of people and to deny the voice of science because public process was set up to get this damn thing approved. Uh, and the Mike Harris government was behind it. The biggest waste company in the world was behind it. And they thought they'd get away with it because number one, uh, our region was poor. Our number, our region was indigenous. And they thought farmers, Indian people and miners aren't gonna be able to stop the biggest waste company in the world. Well, guess what? They were wrong. Good, great. But the reason we won that fight was bringing people together. I mean, the very first time we went uh, with a farmer coalition to sit at the Temiskaming First Nation Council meeting and talk, that had never happened before. And then when the Grand Chief of the Algonquins came into farm country 
and became the de facto leader of a movement. Uh, that sense of bringing people together, because what brought us together was so much greater than what had divided us, you know, language, religion, race. Uh, I learned my politics in that, that we have to build these kind of coalitions if we're going to make change. So I started on the garbage fight, moved to stopping toxic waste imports. Uh, I went to work for the Algonquin Nation in Quebec, and I was dealing with blockades because we then started to say, well, why are we spending all our energy having to blockade just to get someone to the table? Why don't we start saying maybe we could put our energy into bringing people to the table and being proactive so they started to recognize the territory uh, because they knew that this our region would fight. And so that was that led me into federal politics. Is I want to be at the table so that we don't have to be fighting all the time for communities. Oh, what a great story. That's awesome. So uh, a couple years later, you find yourself in uh, contention for the uh, leadership of the New Demo Democratic Party of Canada. Uh, how's that been for you so far? I, I think we have a real opportunity right now. Uh, we need a strong social democratic voice at this time. We need uh, Canada to step up. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Justin uh, has failed. He's promised people the moon but what he's delivering is just a nicer version of neocon politics he's walked away on the nation to nation relationship he's been very cynical about that his environmental policies make stephen harper look like an amateur and so i got involved for the leadership just like i've got involved in everything else in public life it's like is there an opportunity to make change can we do something here? And I think we can. And I'm actually having a blast. Yeah. I gotta say, I'm having a blast. This is a this is a long grind. It's it's eight months of heavy, heavy touring. But I like people. I'm learning a lot. And we're out there on the ground talking to people about what change looks like. That's that's awesome to hear. And and I'm glad to hear that, that you're able to make a positive difference. But when I open the newspaper and I and I read the name Chantal Fox and Jolyn Winter, unfortunately that's that's not a positive story. And that's something that you've been vocal about. I'd like to get a better understanding of, of your knowledge of what happened with those two 12-year-old girls. Jeez, that's a hard story. I, I keep their picture in my office just as I keep many young Indigenous photos of funerals I've been at, uh, the suicides, the deaths by fire. Um, it's unconscionable what's happening in Treaty 9 region in, in Northern Ontario, which is reflective of what's happening in so many places. Uh, these young children died because of systemic negligence by the federal government. They were in Wapakika Reserve and Health Canada cut important program funding that was needed in that community. Um, the Human Rights Tribunal has just found the federal government guilty, culpable, uh, in the deaths of these two young girls, beautiful youngsters who could have changed Canada if they'd lived. And they were found guilty because... They said that the, the federal government knew that it was a, quote, life and death situation, and they didn't spend the money uh, to, to help these young girls. Now we've lost a third child in Wapakika because the government walked away on its promise again. What you're dealing with in Canada is a serious dysfunction, and it's a dysfunction that is not Indigenous. This is white government dysfunction that we see suicide crisis after suicide crisis. We saw it in the Lash, we saw it in Attawapiskat and Niskandiga, many communities where the government waits until enough kids die that it becomes noticed by national or now international media. And then they all they say, they send out tweets, the minister will say, oh, we're so sorry, the prime minister will call it a tragedy. A tragedy is when some kid walks out and gets hit by a bus because it's an accident. When children are dying day after day, that's not a tragedy. 
that is systemic malpractice and, and negligence that has to be called out. What we need to do is we need to dismantle these institutions that control the lives of Indigenous people. We have to have control for decision-making about education, about health, about services being run by the people for whom these services are supposed to be for. That's what decolonization looks like. And I think of Chantel Fox and Jolan Winter, and I think of Azria Kopanens, and I think of Sheridan Hukama, and I think of Josiah Beggs, and I think of all the children that we have lost just in the last year. And I want answers for that. And Canada needs to, to own up to this. And so this is part of why I'm running. Um, we have to take this on. Our greatest resource in this nation are the children, and we cannot sit back while these children are being denied basic, basic rights. Right on. Now, I think you kind of touched to it a little earlier, but as you were stating, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has just recently issued its third non-compliance order to uh, the the Canadian government. What are things that we can do um, to, to help this get going? I mean, we see that it was $150 million that they're lacking in, in funding, um, but we're spending significantly much more money on celebrations like like the Canada 150. Rubber duckies. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. You said it, not I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I remember when uh, Shannon Kustashin was still alive, and she was this the great youth leader, I think, of this generation. And she, when she came down to the Ontario Federation of Labor and told the story of what the children in Attawapiskat were facing, and she wasn't going to put up with it anymore. She was leading uh, young people. And I remember a labor leader stood up and said there should be no politicians sleeping in this country till things get fixed. And I, I urge your listeners, uh, there should be no liberal politician in this country allowed to sleep at night while this government defies the Human Rights Tribunal over systemic racist discrimination against Indigenous children. They were found guilty. They've ignored three compliance orders. If you read the government's last submission to the Human Rights Tribunal, I'm sorry, Justin, you sound a little smoother than Duncan Campbell Scott, but it's the same BS. They write, the government writes in their response to the Human Rights Tribunal that number one, the Human Rights Tribunal can't order the federal government to do anything. And number two, the the Human Rights Tribunal, and I guess what the indigenous people have to show, quote, deference to the government. This is a government system that for 150 years has squandered the lives of indigenous children and people, and we're supposed to show deference to it. And in response, the Human Rights Tribunal finds the federal government guilty one more time and culpable in death of these two young girls. And these two young girls are just symbolic of the deaths of so many other young people that we've had. So I urge listeners, you show up at your MP's offices, you call them out, you go to the public meetings and you call them out again and again and again until they are shamed and dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century and they just they will say publicly that no more children are going to die on our watch, that we are going to put the money where it's obligated to and we're going to dismantle the system of colonialism. That's my celebration for 150 years. Let's make this change and we make it now. And I, I, I agree I agree with everything you just said, and, and I strongly support where, where you're coming from. I've heard you talk about Chelsea Jane Edwards and mm. people that have carried on with Shannon's dream yeah. and, and the important work that's being done. But but I do I do anti-racism work in my day job. And what I find is that there's, there's a lot of deeply entrenched racism in the system, in justice, in the business community, mm-hmm. in the education system across the board. So not only is there top-down racism that's coming from the institutions, but the scarier racism is the 
racism around the kitchen table and the kind of thing that that allowed Trumpism to prevail in in the United States. So what what can Canadians do? I mean, I I believe that they're they're good-hearted Canadians that don't want to see something like this happen, but. What can they do to, to stop racism in its tracks? I, I think we have to always be reaching out to each other. Rather, We have to turn to each other rather than turn on each other. And I know that that might sound like a slogan, but I see the huge potential for change. And so, yeah, I, you know, in my life in politics, I've, I've heard it all uh, from the racist stuff. But I've also seen how many good people are out there, uh, blue-collar people who don't buy this stuff, who want to do the right thing. So let's look at role models. We need heroes. We need role models. I mean, that was one of the things that Shannon Kustashen was so important. We needed young role models so the young Indigenous kids could look up and say, wow, she changed the world. But what I see, I go into projects in South Ottawa uh, and I meet young first-generation Muslim girls, grade five, grade six. They're from Somalia. They're from Iraq. They're from Syria. And Shannon Kustashen's their, their role model. Wow. That's transformative change. Great. Yep. I go into schools in Waterloo region and London, and I got white kids and black kids and Muslim kids, and they tell me the story of Shannon, that she's no longer just this, the voice for the young Cree. She's the voice for a young generation. I believe that our country's moving forward. I believe that people are getting their heads wrapped around stuff they could never get their heads wrapped around before. The residential schools, the truth and reconciliation, what Cindy Blackstock's doing, what's standing in their way? The freaking government standing in their way, you know, yeah. that's what's standing in the way. The fact that there's always going to be angry, you know, racist here or there, it's nothing compared to the s- systemic refusal of government to do the right thing. We start to blow those doors off and then we can start dealing with the with the denial of service, the issues of racism that that exist in our country, but we need government to start really showing the way. And it goes a hell of a lot further than, you know, doing a selfie or, or Justin wearing a buckskin jacket for crying out loud. <laughs> I don't even own a buckskin jacket. My wife does, but she's a Westerner. so <laughs> And she ain't appropriating it. <laughs> Hashtag cultural appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag um, poser. <laughs> um, so I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. No, no, I'm not saying my wife's a poser. I, I, oh, okay. I, I did okay. my political Hashtag poser, Justin, <laughs> not my wife. Hashtag real thing, her. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so speaking of things that are that are getting in our way and in society's way one of the biggest issues that indigenous people have had to face is dealing with the indian act yeah the indian act in and of itself is probably the most racist legislation in canadian history um recently i was reading an article that featured you and your proposal to reform possibly appointing an ombudsman to oversee am i saying the right thing well We'll break it into two parts. Yeah, Perfect. the Indian Act is is the colonial instrument, but before we take down the Indian Act, we have to take down Indian Affairs. This is a department that is not, you cannot tinker with it. You can't fix it. Yeah. Um, we need, so in, in, in response to the deaths in Wapakika, in response to the suicide crisis, uh, I have called for a couple of things. We need a federal child ombudsperson with order making powers and order making powers means that they can go into health canada they can go into indian affairs and they can force compliance to protect the rights of children so to protect children that's number one 
But what we need to do is we need a full, complete public forensic audit of Indigenous Affairs and Health Canada. These are black holes. Yeah. Uh, and I talked to all manner of Indigenous activists on this. Nobody even knows how these departments operate. They don't know how the money is spent. They, they black out documents about education, about health services, like what? These are, these are supposed to be serving the people. Once we know how these departments operate, then we need to dismantle them. And we have to transfer the control and the funding to the people themselves. That's decolonization. Now, people are going to say, well, Charlie, how's that going to be done? How do you suggest it? Well, number one, as the white politician, it's not me saying how it's going to be done. That's not nation to nation. I can get on board with that. Yeah. Number two, <laughs> we're going to do it so it puts the children first. There's no way we're going to break apart a broken system and create an indigenous broken system. There has to be the checks and balances. The communities have to know that when we break this industrial, this colonial system down, it's going to be so that you can do multi-year planning. So communities can decide what their priorities are for the development of their children and the resources go there. Is it going to be difficult? Probably, yeah. Could it be any worse than what we've got? Definitely not. I mean, if, if Steve Banyan had to come up with a completely dysfunctional um, bureaucracy, he couldn't come up, he couldn't in his wildest dreams, couldn't come up with Indian affairs. Yeah, so we, we take that system apart. That's how we start to take down the Indian Act. But the other element that is really crucial is the Justice Department. The yeah. Justice Department are the brass knuckle thugs. They are the ones... Uh, who doesn't matter what Carolyn Bennett says or Jody Wilson-Raybo says, it's the Justice Department who are going in and fighting residential school survivors. It's the Justice Department who are fighting a young Cree girl from getting uh, emergency dental treatment. And it's the Justice Department who's defying the Human Rights Tribunal. So I got this idea from Romeo Saganash, uh, my colleague in the House, who's been such a great leader, that we have to write into the, to the, Justice, the Department of Justice Act of Canada Right now, they're obligated to make sure that they defend the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, they have to also then be obligated to defend Section 35 constitutional rights. Yeah. The Justice Department has to be accountable to Indigenous communities because right now it is the, it is the mechanism for denying rights. And so once we start to do that, then we start to decolonize. And then where do we go with the Indian Act? Well... That's the conversation of how, where do we transform to? But once people are in control of their own lives, well, then the Indian Act, we can blow through that. Yep. That's, I guess that's the sticky question, though, because, that, I mean, th this involves a real paradigm shift. Like when you when you look at a lot of the, the court rulings that have come mm -hmm. out, right? Because, I mean, this kind of all goes back to the white paper, right? Yep. When when the idea was, well, I'll just rip up the Indian Act. And, and that, I know that that's not what you're proposing at all. Uh, but when you look at the court rulings that, that protected some of the indigenous yep. rights that preceded the, the 1982, uh, the, the 35th part of the Constitution, what ended up happening was that it, it was realized that indigenous rights exist outside of the law. Now, I'm approaching this from, from that standpoint, going that the government that I recognize, the, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not a band council government. People don't vote in the band council elections in Six Nations. They don't vote, vote in the band council elections in Oneida, where, where I'm from. We have our own form of government that's 10,000 years old that was passed all the way down from the peacemaker to, to us. So, But even, even just to talk about that, I've been called radical for saying that I'm not a Canadian mm -hmm. citizen. I've been called radical for, for saying that I don't support band council government. 
and and that I won't get directly involved with with the political system. But it's not really radical. That's that's just me being traditional and, mm-hmm. and trying to protect and, and preserve some ways that I've been living my my entire life. So I'm I'm ready for that. But at 37 years old, it's even hard for me to reconcile that with with day to day life inside of what in a place that's now dominated by by Canadians. If it's that hard for me to get there, how can I expect everyday Canadians to get there and people and supporters of the system and politicians and, and that broad level, that paradigm shift that's going to need to happen to truly change the culture? Well, I think the issue for us is we have to say we've been on this road together and 150 years from now, we're still going to be on this road together. So what does being on this road together mean? Is it going to be the same toxic relationship with the last 150 years or are we going to start to transform and we're going to work it out? walking together because we're both on this same land uh we 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 cross over on each other's cultural land all manner of issues so let's start a conversation but number one we have to dismantle the department we have to dismantle the colonial affairs because until we start to dismantle that colonial the colonial control of communities communities are not going to be able to develop in the way that they need to develop now, on the, all the other manner of complicated issues, and there are multitudes of them, I have no idea. But that's what walking on the road together is. And there are going to be conflicts. I mean, issues of like land management, issues of wildlife management. I mean, someone can have a, a constitutional right to hunt and harvest. Um, and uh, for all the people who are going to treat it very carefully, there's always going to be one idiot who would rather strip the lake bare right so how do we work that out right because we we have we have to say we have individual rights we have treaty rights we have a we have a we have the the rights and we have the obligations and these things are not going to get settled just by one government and making this or that but we have to walk that road together and we have to do it together and to start that man we got to start taking on this department and its control and its decision-making powers. And once that starts to happen, I think we're, I mean, I, I see us walking already. It's starting to happen, just not happening fast enough. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, and we, what we've seen in government over the last couple of years, not even the last couple of years, just in general, is when a p- party is in the position of critic or opposition, they often say things and do things that are just Outstanding. Like I was a huge fan of Carolyn Bennett prior to mm-hmm. her coming into office. The way she advocated for Indigenous people, the way she held the the file and portfolio was just left me, I guess, in awe. How are you, how is the NDP government going to be different? How are they going to put action behind their words, if you will? Well, I I've got enormous respect for Carolyn Bennett, and I think it's what's been really heartbreaking yeah. is to see that so many of the same patterns are repeating. Now I understand patterns are hard to break, but when you're found in uh, guilty of denying children their rights and you won't spend that money because you're using money tables that were brought together in the Harper era. Yeah. No, sorry, that's not good enough. No, that's not on. Uh, what they're shortchanging indigenous children in terms of what they give out elsewhere, it's chicken feed to them. Yeah. And I don't want to diminish the amount of money, but these are things governments can fix. Yeah. And if we don't start to do the things we can fix, we'll never get to the more complicated stuff. So this is why I'm convinced that we have to start doing the full forensic audit of these services, figure out why these things are happening and start to take that power away. Because we've got the first indigenous justice minister and she's got 
lawyers in court fighting residential school survivors yeah. and fighting Cindy Blackstock. We have a medical doctor in charge of Health Canada, uh, and they're denying services to Indigenous children. And we have probably the nicest Indigenous Affairs Minister in a generation, and uh, she's rubber stamping uh, the same policies and the same same old, same old. So something's broken. It's either political will or it's the system, but we have to take that on. And and again, the bills come due. Like it's, we can't, this ain't going to drag on for another 20 and 25 years. We're losing children every single day and we got to stop that. How do you convince people it's in their best interest though? I, I go through this as an environmentalist all the time, right? Like when, when you look at it, if, if you look at the environment and protecting the environment, and a lot of times it's actually in the longer term, better economic mm-hmm. interest to leave things like forests intact and wetlands intact and to keep the shorelines clean and to keep your water sources clean. And it actually has a longer term economic benefit, but it's easy for someone to come along and wave a pot of a billion dollar uh, development. And, and that lures people into, into going for the quick money. So how do you how do you convince people that that the social good aligns with what may be their personal interests when it comes to more complicated issues like indigenous rights? Well, I I think that we've come over the last fifteen years, Canadians have come up like their eyes have our eyes have been opened in remarkable ways. Um, things like the movement, like Shannon's movement, I mean, has inspired so many people. The truth and reconciliation has opened people's eyes. I think what you say to people is like, what kind of nation squanders the future of its young? You put that money into education, into services, and you transform our nation. And this is one of the reasons I always tell the stories of young leaders like Chelsea Edwards and that. When I go into the communities, I see incredible young people. I always, I, there's not a time I don't go into one of the communities and I don't say to one of the young people, I want you to take my job. That's, that's why I'm coming in. I want you to say, I can do this. Um, and that's why I think we say to Canadians, in terms of the environment, I think people are really concerned about where we're going. I talk to people who have got to go up and work in Fort Mac and Fort St. John. Uh, they work there because they got no work anymore on the home front. And they come home and they, they tell me they're concerned about climate change. So as a nation, we got potential. Like I've just been in Alberta talking with energy workers who work up in the refineries and they're they're doing retraining. They want to get into solar. They want to get into renewables. Uh, I think Canadians are there. Who's not there is the government. I mean, we got a government de- defiantly defending the 20th century. I mean, come on. We're into the second decade of a new century. Like, uh, That's where we got to start saying, this is what forward-looking looks like. And I think people are there. And I think it needs leadership at this time. The the conventional thinking right now, then, I, I, I first off, I love your point about how we, we all have a lot more in common than, than we may think. And, and we found that, right? When you sit down around the table with people, you can forge out solutions. Yeah. But what about the people that say that if we just build the pipelines now, then this will fund the revolution. We can just build the pipeline from, from Alberta to BC, and then we'll make a quick buck off that. But then we'll reinvest all that money in renewables, but down the road and up, you know, further along and not now, right? So if it's always in the future, when's the change going to finally happen? Well, this is the thing you like, we've failed year after year, right? I mean, I remember 15 years ago, 14 years ago, when Stefan Dion was the Minister of Environment, and the Liberals were going to meet the Kyoto targets by voluntary emission standards. I was like, voluntary? Who's kidding who? <laughs> I come from mining country. Like, literally, I come from blue collar. I come from mines. Like, the the, the lake behind my house is beautiful. It was poisoned. Yeah. The wow. reason they clean that up is of regulations. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they never cleaned up Sudbury because they asked Inco, when does it feel appropriate to clean this up, <laughs> right? Now there's trees there. When I was a kid, it was black, black hills. So we have to look at what works. So in England, they, they, were, they were way worse than us on greenhouse gas emissions. Now, of course, England's a lot smaller. It's easier to have public transit and all that stuff. But they established what's called a national carbon budget. So they established limits. Whatever their limits were, they were hard legal limits. And then they had you know, independent scientists, whatever. And then they started to say, where do we have to meet? Where do we have to invest? So what we're not doing in Canada is setting those hard limits. We have international obligations. Once you establish the hard limits, these are legal caps. You're not going above those caps. Then you start to say, okay, how do we start to meet this? Where do we put the the energy, the, 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 the funding into renewables or whatever? Then all these other projects, like pipelines, like big new developments, have to be seen in terms of a, the cap. Does it meet the cap? Does it exceed the cap? You know, industry can do one or it can, can do the other. That's the conversation we're not happening. We have the prime minister who's approved three pipelines in a row. Now he's on Keystone Excel and he's saying, don't worry, we're gonna meet our Paris Accords. Like who's kidding who here, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think it's like, we gotta step back. This is what I was saying the other day. We gotta step back from arguing flashpoints and saying, we have to establish some kind of legal process to start to deal with all this because if we allow this, that, and the other to just keep going, we'll never get there. And every year we get further behind and other countries are starting to get further ahead. Fair. That's fair. Yep. So um, one of the things we like to do on this show is called the traveling thought. Um, being from an indigenous country, being from an indigenous consist- constituency, I'm assuming you've heard of the traveling song. Um, and if you haven't, I'll just give a little explanation to our listeners. So anytime you come to a, any indigenous gathering, um, as we leave and as we say our goodbyes, we do what's called a traveling song. And the intent of that traveling song is to give everybody who's making that transition from where they are to where they need to be, uh, making sure that they get there in a good way and mm. send out good medicine to those people. So we've adapted that and put our little twist on it. And what we want to give you the opportunity to do is give uh, your final thoughts, your final words that you want to really resonate to our listeners and to our hosts and to everybody and within our network. Wow, that's uh, that's one heck of, that's probably the toughest thing uh, I've been asked to. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, I- Mission accomplished. <laughs> okay, now you, you got Charlie blah, 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 stuck. Um, okay, I'll tell you, I come from, I come from North, uh, a riding bigger than Great Britain. And when you fly up into the James Bay, into places like Kishetchewan and Attawapiskat, the immensity of the land, is incredible and I always think of two things I think how are the Cree able to survive here 6,000 plus years on such cold isolated terrain that's human ingenuity and in the middle of this they found diamonds and when they found diamonds man the whole world came South Africa London man you heard them coming up on the plains and that's human ingenuity too the ability to find these diamonds like in such an isolated place. And when they found diamonds, cost was no object. They built a massive uh, plant. They built state-of-the-art everything. And then just down the road from that mine was a little uh, village of Attawapiskat. And they couldn't figure out how to build those kids a school. And Canada got to understand our greatest resource is not the diamonds. It ain't the oil. It's not the copper. It's the children. 
And once we start looking in these communities like Fort Hope, uh, Big Trout Lake, Niskandaga, and start to see the power of these children, um, we will be the nation of settlers and indigenous people that will transform the world. And until then, it's we're just losing so much opportunity. So think of those children, think of the opportunities and make sure that your member of parliament does not sleep well at night until these things start to get fixed. That's my traveling thought. Well said. Excellent. Well, mm. on, on behalf of One Dish, One Mike and the Niagara Podcasters Network and myself, Carl Oxlater. Yeah. And myself, Sean Vanderclose. We'd like to thank you for, for joining us for this podcast. This has been absolutely terrific. Thanks well, thank you. That's Charlie Angus, first on the ballot, <laughs> first in your heart. You'll never go wrong. <laughs> you didn't change your name to Angus so that you'd be first on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderclus. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts.